That's dope. This is the Wolf of All Streets podcast, and what you're listening to is an audio version of my live YouTube stream. I would love if all of you would please go on Apple or Spotify, whatever platform you're listening to, and rate the show. Give it a five star so that more people will listen and find this episode. Thank you for listening and enjoy. That's dope. The institutions are coming. The institutions are coming. That's not my quote. That's actually Paul Revere in the American Revolution. People don't know that's actually what he said. He wasn't talking about the British. But that rallying call, the institutions are coming, has been a cry from the crypto community since as long as I've been here, basically late 2016. Obviously, we were dead wrong about that sentiment in 2016 and 2017. But I think it's fair to say now that we're looking at the likes of BlackRock, Citadel, Fidelity, and basically every other money manager or hedge fund on the planet talking about crypto that they are here. But what does that actually mean for the space and what does that look like in the future? I've got three incredible guests today to discuss that topic and, of course, to see where the conversation meanders after that. I've got Oliver Lynch, the CEO of Bittrex Global, Matt Hogan, the CIO of Bitwise, and Bill Barheit, the CEO of Abra, all classic favorite guests of yours. Can't wait to have this conversation, guys. Let's go. That's dope. What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, also known as the Wolf of All Streets. Before we get started, please subscribe to the channel and institutionally adopt the like button. I don't know what that means, but that's what you should probably do to the like button. Uh, as I always say, you can do whatever you want to the like button. We don't judge here. This is a judgment-free free zone. But uh, just find a way to hit it because uh, otherwise nobody will ever watch my YouTube videos again. And I'll just be screaming endlessly into a camera by myself, and nobody wants that. So as I mentioned, we've been talking about institutional adoption for a very long time in the crypto space. It's very clear that it is happening, but I think there's a lot of confusion uh, as to how that is actually happening and what that is likely to look like in the future. There are plenty of people who would claim now that we got exactly what we asked for, which was a bunch of institutions adopting Bitcoin, which means shorting the shit out of it because it's liquid when everything else is on fire. Uh, not exactly what we were looking for, but I'm not sure it's actually the case either. I'm going to go ahead and bring on all three guests right now. I've got Oliver Lynch from Bittrex Global, Matt Hogan from Bitwise, and Bill Barheit from Abra. How's it going, gentlemen? Good. Good to see you all. Yeah, great to be here. Bill's got the very nice uh, fake piano in the background that I would love to be sitting and playing. All, all of you, actually. I think, Matt, you've got the uh, only uh, real background besides me. And Oliver, I love yours because I asked Oliver where those beautiful mountains were before. And he said, that's the view from our office, but it's also a photo of the view from the office. Right? It's, like in, it's kind of like Inception. So, um, so, so I... I, I I introduced the topic here, obviously. We're going to start by by talking about institutional adoption. And I do want to start with the idea that I just touched on, which is that we sort of got what we asked for. Everybody screamed for the institutions to come and to adopt Bitcoin, but maybe they've mostly adopted it as traders and not as the treasury asset we viewed or actually using it. Uh, listen, Matt, you're, you're very much on the front line of what's happening here with the institutions. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think you're right in your framing. Look, institutions is a very big word and has a bunch of different categories. Certainly in early 2020, we did see hedge funds and others make 
long only allocations to crypto. And that contributed to the huge run we saw from March 2020 to November 2021. But we also saw trading firms, as you mentioned, Scott, get in it on the uh, on the trading side. And that cuts both ways. And we've seen it cut both ways in this pullback. At Bitwise, you know, we serve an audience that I think is the institutions that crypto is waiting to come into the market. These are people who make long-term allocations in a portfolio the same way you do to stocks and bonds. These are financial advisors, family offices, and some of the endowment category. And I can say that two things have happened in that space. Uh, one, they're starting to adopt it. It was never going to be a cliff, right? Where it was zero to a hundred. But at Bitwise, we now serve over 1,600 financial advisors and institutions. That's a very big wow. number. It's yeah, probably yeah. up, you know, something like 10x in the past year. The other thing that's happened, Scott, is we've gotten approvals. This is not just Bitwise, but other Bitwise-like companies. We've gotten approval on national account platforms so that when the next bull market happens, all those financial advisors, all those family offices can actually allocate. Now, I think the biggest change is not that they've these long only investors have impacted the market, but now they're they're sort of in the game. They have the ability to enter the crypto market, which wasn't true a year ago, wasn't true two years ago. And I, I think what that means is if we start to see crypto spring uh, appear, and I wore a pink shirt today because I think it's just around the corner. If we start to see crypto spring appear, um, I think we're going to see those institutions that people were looking for, the good, long-only, long-term investing institutions actually come into the market this time because now they're able to do it with the push of a button. Whereas two years ago, they had to have a conversation with their home office. They had to have a conversation with their risk team. It was basically impossible. Now it's very easy. And so I think it's a little bit of a, a coiled spring in there. Oliver, they can push that button on Bittrex Global, right? So how much are you uh, servicing institutional clients and, and what are you seeing? They certainly can. And, and I'll have to melt some of the snow on the uh, background of my photo if we've got Crypto Spring coming. Um, but yeah, we're, we're seeing a similar kind of thing. So we're seeing both on and on platform activity with institutions really ramping up. Some of that is, is trading activity that's happening right now. Uh, and some of that is, uh, as was mentioned, getting your ducks in a row to be able to execute quickly as and when the market kind of comes back a bit. Um, and what we're seeing is the originally tentative, put your toe in the water and see if it kind of works sentiment is now being replaced by a bunch of people that want to use all the experience and all of the trading strategies they developed in the traditional markets over the past 20, 30 years to apply that to new asset class. So what we're seeing is actually them driving a lot of the innovation and working with companies like Bitrix Global to, to develop new products, new strategies, uh, and, and new ways that they can engage in crypto. So the innovation that's being driven by that, that institutional investment is really, it's just getting going. It's just starting. And um, um, that's one of the things that we're really interested in seeing. So when you introduce your segment at the beginning and, and, and said, you know, are the institutions doing what we all hope that they would do? It's easy to forget that we live in crypto time where you know a minute equals a year at, at the very at the very least um the institutions are a little bit sluggish compared to that but what they bring with them is a depth of knowledge a depth of um innovation that over the coming months and we, we've already seen it but over the coming months we're really going to see uh i think an explosion in the interest there and what they're doing now is starting to test those out starting to test those series out and challenging us challenging the exchanges challenging the people that have been in the space for the last, uh, in our case, decade 
um, to say, well, look, can you give us what we need? How do we how do we get you where we need to be? How do we get crypto where we need it to be in order to become a genuine asset class? So that's something we're really excited about and we're seeing increasingly in the market. And Bill, they can push that button on Abra as well. So <laughs> what, yeah, what do you see? Sure. I, I think there's two different perspectives on what institutional adoption means, right? The first is, uh, are we enabling institutions to easily buy and sell cryptocurrencies? And, and all of us here are doing that. And, you know, we've got our fund structure where now we're seeing a lot more interest in, in, in uh, longer term holdings. And we've got traditional finance companies signing up in some cases to short, some cases, you know, looking for for uh, faster liquidity um, and borrowing. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of interest still in borrowing tether never seems to go away um the trade that won't die um and you know that's going to continue uh but for me when when we when i think about institution institutional adoption i also think about well wait a minute we've got we've got DeFi rails now we've got uh you know dApps and i actually see a lot of that as a big part of the future of banking so yeah so we're enabling buys and sells and 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 liquidity and lending uh you know and, and and that makes us a lot of money uh but i'm actually equally excited about okay when are banks actually going to be using DeFi rails right that that's what institutional adoption means to me uh and we're not seeing that yet but i do think it's coming and we're having more and more conversations with with banks with traditional finance companies saying Hey, can you enable us, you know, to use this stuff at some point? Can we white label this to be able to hold uh, crypto NFTs, access DeFi rails for lending and staking, et cetera, et cetera, because the demand is there. That's usage, right? That's not happening yet, but I think that's the next wave. Yeah, I spoke with Josh Frank at the Thai last week when we were in Vegas and he made a similar point, but that when he really dug in with their data, that kind of nobody was using any of this stuff, right? And it was it was a bit astounding, actually. Right, it was a bit astounding when he uh, actually sort of laid it out and what they're seeing on chain, especially the Uniswaps and AMMs of the world that we think have millions of active too. users. Literally, some of these things, people like fifty people are using them a day, right? So um, that just tells you, given how high some of the volumes are compared to first-generation exchanges how a few users goes a long way with some of this stuff, right? You get, uh, you know, a thousand institutions using a, a DEX and, and, and AMMs, and all of a sudden you're going to see trillions of dollars flowing through these things. Right. But what's going to compel them to actually do that? I believe they will. I mean, just playing devil's advocate. Um, I, I can give you a few. I can, I mean, cross sure, border. And then we'll go around the table, please. Uh, liquidity yep. opportunities, cross-border opportunities, arbitrage opportunities, um, you know, cross-border lending, uh, being shut out of traditional markets, fear of dealing with, you know, traditional um, uh, banking correspondence, which has been the bane of existence for a lot of smaller international banks for 15 years post-choke point. And the list goes on and on. I mean, there's many compelling reasons why DeFi is going to make sense for, especially, oh, the securitization of, of, of tokens and other assets through, uh, you know, and through token models. All of this is is uh, going to lead to a boon, in my opinion, in the adoption of of what we're calling and bucketing under DeFi. Um, but it's going to happen most likely outside the U.S. first. I think mid-sized banks will adopt it first. Those that have more pain, I talk to banks all the time that that still are dealing with the hangover of choke point and correspondent banking issues, and this is perfect for them. 
I think there's also a, a cultural issue as well, right? Which is that those that have adopted are still considered early adopters and are kind of mavericks and, and actually gain a lot of publicity by claiming them, proclaiming themselves as mavericks. Actually, as it becomes a normal asset class like anything else, that's just the way you do that, that segment of your business. It will be um, just as unnoteworthy to be engaging in decentralized finance and, and you know, the things that we think of now as kind of funky. Well, if that just becomes a normal asset class and a normal way of doing business, you know, we kind of think in the next couple of years, we won't be having this conversation about, you know, why are you doing X and not Y in the same way as we don't have a conversation really about why do you trade bonds and not shares or you know, whatever your, your preferred instrument of choice is. So I think there's a cultural element of it too, which is as the sector as a whole matures and as it becomes more mainstream, we talk about mass adoption a, a lot, but what that really means is um, making it a bit more boring and making it a bit more normal. Uh, and, uh, and and that's no bad thing at all, really, if we want to see um, big institutions, but also retail investors um, really getting into crypto in a big way. Yeah, I, th I think all that's right. I still think it's a, a couple of years away, Scott. I mean, when I, when I look at something like, uh, like DeFi, um, you know, I, I think the first people who will come in are going to be the arbitrageurs before it becomes mainstream on the, on the back end. Uh, mainstream institutions need to learn how to do due diligence on DeFi protocols, yeah. right? <laughs> when you put yourself in the seat of someone working at a large financial institution, you have to remember that they wake up every day trying not to get fired. That's the first thing they think when they look in the mirror. And one way to get fired is to be working with an edge case like a DeFi app, not understanding how to do due diligence on it, suffer from a hack or an export or something, et cetera. And there's just not the institutional knowledge on how to do diligence these things or how to ensure these things or how to appropriate risk parameters around these things. And until that penetrates into these institutions, we're not going to get anywhere. Now it's starting to, if you go to large consultants, if you go to Cambridge, uh, if you go to Mercer, they're conversant in this stuff. They're building operational due diligence paradigms for this stuff, but it hasn't penetrated all the way into mainstream institutions and until well, it does. Yeah, and it's a scale problem more than anything else. I mean, it's because that, that's what the motive, that's the, sorry, that leads to motivation because we make a lot of profits for our clients in DeFi arbitrage today, uh, but not at Citibank scale. Right. And, and, and if Citibank said, OK, move the needle and DeFi arbitrage, it's not going to happen. Right. <laughs> and, and so there's just not enough opportunity, not enough liquidity, not enough opportunities to do that. But when we're dealing with hundreds of millions or in single digit billions, yes, we can actually generate phenomenal uh, arbitrage profits via DeFi today, which helps to uh, provide liquidity to the networks, which helps to you know smooth out pricing across the networks, exactly what arbitrage opportunities are, are, are meant to do. And it's also, you know, providing all kinds of, of testing and, and, and risk management oversight that the mid-sized banks are going to want to see first. And we're showing them uh, is actually possible in yeah. DeFi today. There's a reason why, you know, some have lost money in DeFi and some haven't. And, and so they're starting to pay attention to that, but it's happening at the edges and, and it's not happening um, in, in kind of the middle of the, the global banking network yet, for sure. Yeah, Bill, you just made a great point about the yield and the size of the market. And I would argue that a lot of the contagion and blowups, which you did not experience at Abra, um, are a result of that, right? Because they, the trades that these platforms were making to offer yield to their customers were available until there were too many customers and those yeah. trades disappeared. And then, in my humble opinion, from, from digging into it so deeply, they had to 
go to the fringe to try to find that yield and did riskier and riskier things because they didn't want to lose their client base when their yield went down from 9% to 1% or 2%. Right. Poor, right. poor marketing leads to laziness, which leads to concentration risk. Uh, and, and, you know, rather than reset expectations, you, you put all your eggs in a, in a, in a leaky basket and, and you keep weighing down that basket with more and more shit. And all of a sudden the bottom falls out. And, and that's exactly what happens when, when, you know, you have poor, poor risk management and DeFi is no different in this regard. You know, we run a centralized banking system at Abra, but we use, uh, tr you know, DeFi to generate yield with traditional risk management, but customized for the nuances of DeFi, right? We're not, you know, putting lending best practices on top of DeFi. We're putting DeFi best practices on top of DeFi. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that makes sense. It's just, you wonder, as you said, what's going to compel the institutions to come in if that volume and liquidity isn't there for them to actually time. earn that yield. But I guess that comes with time and just more interest and adoption. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Matt, I want to go back to something you said, which is that there's very difficult for these risk managers to do their due diligence on these DeFi protocols. I guess my question to all of you is how can anyone do due diligence on these protocols if every other day we seemingly have an exploit even of the most well-established and considered safe? I, I, I don't even see how you do diligence that if the platform itself can't avoid the exploit or hack. Again, I believe that's with time, but I mean, just right now. Yeah, I, for, first of all, with time is an important piece. You look at the more established DeFi protocols like Compound that have been around for multiple years, and I think institutions have a lot of embedded trust in those well-established protocols. So you're going to see a network effect, a first mover effect in DeFi, simply because of the, the, the mitigation of Rumsfeld risk, right? You don't know what you don't know. Uh, with those, at least they've been through multiple stress tests. So I, I think that's a very real thing. Um, but you can do pretty comprehensive due diligence on DeFi protocols. You can do uh, code analysis of your own. You can you can test the founders. You can look at their their sort of starting point and where their funding came from, the caliber of the team, how many developers are on there, how much real activity is on there, how many real users are on there. You can't drive it down to zero, but if you could drive it down to zero, the yields would be one percent. They wouldn't be eight, nine, ten percent. So um, you have to keep that in mind. But it's different from knowing those questions to ask versus where most institutions are. That's the point I was where they're used to, um, you know, doing a completely different style of due diligence yeah. and they just need to build that institutional knowledge over time. But I do think the passage of time is a big thing. If you look at what happened in DeFi, you know, we it went from zero to something very real. Uh, you're right that there aren't a lot of users in it right now, but there aren't a lot of people paying attention to, to crypto. Uh, really right now right. the market is like watching paint dry you know we were talking about that in the in the pre-show i think our index rose 0.03 percent last week and the week before that it fell 0.01 percent right those are not the returns that crypto investors are used to so i, I think we've had a proof point that DeFi works we've stress tested it there are a few blue chip paradigms that people are comfortable with and when the bull market returns, I think we'll see the users. Yeah, I think that one of the things that's confused a lot of investors is that a small number of users in the crypto markets generates a lot more profit than the same number of small users in 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 either traditional investing or traditional banking. Um, and that's I'm sorry, I know we have our friends from the Trex here and, and, and a good partner, but you know, you know, exchange spreads are very uh, fees are very high, 
you know, we don't we don't work for free. You know, Bitwise doesn't work for free. Uh, and if you compare, you know, what what's made in, in our world versus traditional banking, it's actually a lot more per user. And that's just the reality of where our space is right now. And so, you know, it, it just I think it also inflates, uh, you know, things and, and, and obviously 24 seven, the markets don't close. And, and all of a sudden you add all that in, you've got three X number of hours in which to trade uh, globally. And, you know, all of a sudden the numbers look look a lot bigger. Uh, but when you peel it back, you realize that a small number of users can actually drive huge, uh, huge numbers uh, in, in this space relative to even traditional investing. I think that I think that's right. And one other thing I'd add um, just real quick is like if you take Uniswap and you compare it to Coinbase, Coinbase annual user count in year one was a million, in year two was two million, in year three is five million, and today is a hundred million, right? Uh, we're still not very good at understanding what exponential growth means. And uh, if you look at Uniswap two years ago, it had zero users effectively, and it has many more than zero. It's probably compounding and growing faster than Coinbase is, uh, maybe two, five, ten x faster. Yeah. And Coinbase is pretty big today, so. You know, if we if we come back in in three years, my guess is they're going to be a lot of people using Uniswap. That's yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, no, the the raw number of users only tells you so much um, because a, a lot of those users will be dormant, and a lot of those users aren't really driving forwards right. the kind of analysis that, that we're looking at. So, I think don't underestimate the importance of having a small number of people taking it seriously because it's going back to the point about risk modeling. Well, it doesn't take an awful lot for risk models to be developed and then become an industry standard. And at the moment, people are kind of fumbling around, maybe putting it a bit too pejoratively, but still trying to figure out their approach to these things. And I think that comes back right to what we were talking about at the, at the top of the conversation is the institutions getting their ducks in a row. Well, part of that is modeling, adapting traditional models. I, I, I don't think it's right to say that they need to throw out their traditional models and, and just do a DeFi analysis. I think they need to adapt their models. That's the only way we're going to get them to actually buy in, right? They're, nobody is interested in throwing out 30 years worth of thinking, 30 years worth of proof, uh, just because there's this new funky product in town. What they need to do is adapt to the new reality, or the so-called new reality, and figure out how to do the same kinds of things, apply the same principles in the new way. So, so that's what I think we're doing, and and it, it is a function of time. Uh, but the other the other big thing is it going wrong right the, the unfortunately the only way really to prove these things is to stress test them and when you stress test some things they break uh and it's easy for us as an exchange to sit back and be like huh yeah that didn't work that sucks for you um but it is part of the industry kind of growing up um the better models survive the worst models break and everyone learns from from that fallout so time yes but but activity is also right. important. So, so in a way, the liquidity issue at the moment is not just an immediate problem because, you know, we want there to be more liquidity, but it's also a problem because we're not actually allowing these models to be stress tested. So we don't know what is and isn't working. Sure. But I also think I, I agree with that. But I think that the next wave, right, what's going to drive adoption in the next wave and what's going to bring liquidity, I think it's going to be applications that move crypto to the background, right? Um, my bank uses Bitcoin. My my bank uses DeFi. My game uses uses DeFi. Uh, my game uses NFTs and DeFi. It's actually all the same thing. I mean, the differences in code and DNA are, are very tiny, right? So when it comes to these smart contracts, and so so that's the next wave in our in our opinion. Yeah, the speculation is going to continue, and that's going to provide liquidity to all of the services 
that I'm that I'm hypothesizing about. But the bank we're building is going to use DeFi in the background. It's going to use you know crypto collateralized lending in the background. It's going to um, you know enable gamers to hold NFTs in a bank account, and they're not going to have to understand any any of how the, anything about how this works or the legal issues around making it work. Um, just like they don't understand how a money market works or you know how a repo works. And, and that's the problem today is we're, yeah, we're basically the, assuming the, that the, users need to understand all that. The problem is with, with assuming that users don't need to know all of this is that's fine when you're talking about traditional finance where you're limiting it and limiting exposure to it, um, keeping it out, out the hands of retail. But if we want crypto to be available to the sort of mass market, the kind of democratization effect, I think we do need to educate people. I think people will be spooked if they find out that these things are going on in the background that they don't know about them and may well then gravitate away from those institutions. So maybe that, maybe that's- I don't know, consumers are pretty ignorant about what happens in bond markets, which have been fucking them for 40 years. Yeah, <laughs> but, but, we, yeah but, but we can- really this year. But Bill, we can do better, right? I, I think sure, we can, crypto we has will, the opportunity the to- the transparency of DeFi is that there's no, there's no tide to wait to go out, right? If the information is all there and you can basically see what's uh, systemically is happening in the system. And there will be watchers who watch that. There will be, you know, independent watchers. There will be corporate watchers. There will be regulatory watchers. There will be consumer watchers. Uh, but the vast majority of people are never going to understand the nuances of how smart contracts work. They're just not. Oh, I, I, they're not going to understand the code. They're not going to understand the, the nuances in, in that level of detail. But I think the only way you're going to get people confident enough to put their money in in this kind of new new product is by educating them and showing them why this is different from the bond markets that have been screwing them, why this is different, why this provides them with opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise have. So squirreling crypto away into the background and kind of hoping people don't ask too many questions, even in the knowledge that if they do, you've got answers. I don't know, maybe that's the end goal, but I think we're some yeah. years away from that being a, a viable model. I, I, look at I, gaming and, I look at gaming and NFTs as, as an example of what I'm saying. And I talk to gamers now all the time because we're launching a new, effectively a new NFT banking service. And yeah, that like when I explain to them how we're able to store NFTs in a bank account model and still give them the MetaMask functionality, their eyes glass over and they're like, wow, that's cool. I don't have to understand all this MetaMask crap. That's great. And, and it's a perfect example of what it's going to take to get a million users, including the gaming companies themselves, by the way, uh, to, to actually come in and say, okay, I get why you know we need this next generation model because we ourselves have been testing this on metamask and and you know we've lost x thousand dollars worth of tokens because we didn't realize or we didn't understand truly that we were managing the keys ourselves i think you're both correct actually and are probably just talking about different uh points on the timeline right because absolutely, i yeah. mean to, to, to oliver's point if you're an investor you absolutely need to know what you're investing in and that first wave of adoption will come with people who are genuinely interested in what DeFi has to offer and then mm -hmm. the potential of those assets but if we're talking about mainstream adoption you don't want your average 15 year old gamer to have to figure out how a smart contract works to be able to move their nft into Fortnite, <laughs> right and so I, I i think that that's so they're both true, and maybe one is more specific to DeFi and one is more specific to the other applications. At least that's what I, I'm hearing from the two of you. But Bill, yeah. you you, yeah, you pointed out the right. fact, yeah, go ahead. You you pointed out the fact that uh, Abra obviously has applied for a bank charter, right? So uh, you're moving very much into the more legacy system to make the offerings 
uh, that you talked about in DeFi. We just saw Bank of New York Mellon officially start to talk about custodying crypto assets, which, you know, in a bear market, all of this news kind of just goes unnoticed and, and doesn't move the needle. But for institutions you guys are talking to, isn't custody from the largest custodian on the planet about as big as it gets for trust? Yeah, it is. Yeah, 100%. Matt, Matt, no, no, I absolutely agree. I, I think it speaks to what we were talking about earlier. The beauty of Bank of New York Mellon is that when you want, when you talk to investors about custody, is for the conversation to last four seconds. Where do you custody assets? Bank of New York Mellon. Okay, tell Done. me about the investment strategy, right? That's the conversation you want. Four years ago, it was like, how do you remove the Wi-Fi card from a computer so you can set up a an offline cold storage device that you store in a cold deposit box at a bank underneath San Francisco. And that is a conversation that leads to no allocation. So the beauty of, of a thing like Bank of New York Mellon is it just checks a box. And we have more of those things just checking a box. And I, I do think that's where we want to get to. There will always be an audience that wants to understand this, that needs to understand the details. But for most people, for the mainstream, uh, they really want to hear what they want to hear and check the box and then move on. Yep. 100%. So Bill, why did you decide then to pursue a bank charter and not, you know, partner with a bank of New York Mellon and to build it yourself? Well, the custody is just one component of, of dealing with, with crypto. Um, you know, we may end up working with the likes of a Mellon or others in the future when it comes to different aspects of custody, but the service palette that we want to offer over time, uh, includes everything from investing to being able to borrow against assets. I think the next run up, you're going to see the, uh, a boon in people doing mortgages uh, using a combination of homes and crypto as as collateral. Uh, you're going to see uh, tokenization of, of different types of, of securities and fixed income instruments, um, not all of which is solved via, you know, going to BNY Mellon. And, and so we're basically building a, a private bank, I would say almost like a first republic for crypto, that's going to enable our largest high net worth clients, uh, which we now have in like, I don't know, 75 countries to be able to access all of these next generation services uh, without having to uh, worry about the, um, you know, the viability of the counterparty and the entity that they're dealing with. And, you know, this whole, I'm sorry, but this whole kind of narrative of unbank yourself uh, was, was a cowboy and we had a, I think we had a show on your on your program about this, where it was it was a cowboy narrative meant for you know early adopter degens who bought into the nineteen percent yield narrative without you know to to our colleagues' correct point without actually understanding what was going on behind the scenes. And we're, we're basically fully committed to as a result to this model to the transparency uh, and you know the technology requirements for managing eventually a trillion dollars worth of worth of assets doing all the types of applications that I just described. Yeah, let me. Uh, I, I saw a quote by Bill that I really like talking about this and I'll just read it back. It's weird to be quoted while you're on the call, but here you go. Uh, As a regulated licensed bank, it's no longer my opinion that matters on transparency and public disclosures. And I, I think I think that's a really like that's the important thing. And I think that gets lost in crypto's uncertainty around what to do uh, with regulation. Um, there is a real massive up when we're talking about institutions coming, there's a real massive upside to that regulatory imprimatur, which is that that gets you a long way to checking the box as well. 
right? It's no longer this cowboy pass where it's trust me. Uh, that's not actually a model that scales to where crypto wants to go, where it's mainstream and where it's a 10 trillion, 50 trillion dollar market or whatever. That's a market that's regulated because that's the only way to um, automatically deliver that trust. And, I, I, and this, is, this has I been agree. a big talking point in the EU, especially as they've just gone through the process of doing Mika. Okay, it, it's not banking, but it, it's it's a regulated industry, right? So um, the, the narrative there, and it's something that, that Budgets Global has um, been invested in for quite some time, being a regulated exchange, we're regulated in Liechtenstein and Bermuda. Okay, we, we don't carry out banking services, but we carry out exchange services. And it, it seems bizarre to us that there are incredibly strict rules that govern the conduct of exchanges in the traditional markets. Yep. In the EU, that's MIFID. But if you, if, if you found out that the New York Stock Exchange was an unregulated market and you've been putting your money in there, you you, you would be confused, to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and yet in the crypto space, that is um, the norm, right? And um, we at Bitrix have been one of the very few exchanges that have been pushing against that. Now we're seeing that narrative in the EU now with Mika. We're seeing that narrative uh, across the world. The US is kind of doing its own thing and figuring out yeah. what it, it wants to do. Um, yeah. But, but, but yeah, you, you wouldn't put your money in an unregulated bank. Why would you put your money in an unregulated exchange? And then right. Abra's gone, well, why don't we become a regulated bank? Right. Um, and it depends on the services you're carrying out. Exactly. But the importance of regulation now, I think, is unarguable. You know, when we were pushing for this 10 years ago, uh, we would get letters saying, you're, you're undermining crypto. You guys are you're anathema to everything we stood for. Our founders got yeah. death threats for suggesting that there should be someone from the governments, you know, verifying this stuff. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I think Bill's quote is great. By the way, if you get quoted in your own podcast, you're like, big <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah, last you, time I saw you, that was you're, on Harry You're, Mitt you're, you're famous now, though, right? Yeah, they were. Um, but, but that quote is right. Like someone, someone coming in and saying, you know what? According to these standards that we have adopted, you guys are ticking these boxes and doing these things. That gives, like. It, it's not just a trophy to put in your trophy cabinet, which unfortunately some jurisdictions are handing out and, and using the, the cloak of regulation. Well, we are, <clears throat> we're in the industry needs to do a better job of saying, okay, how are you regulated? Where are you regulated? What does that mean? But if you can tick those boxes, if you answer those questions, then the retail investor and the institutional investor has confidence in the, in the products that are being traded on there, whether that's at a bank or as an exchange or somewhere in between, um, you know, that, that confidence, I think, is going to be king. And yeah, the days of saying unbank yourself, uh, well, we, we never bought into that. And we're glad that the rest of the world's kind of caught up. So, so let me say two things, right? I, I agree with everything you just said. Two things. One, we didn't become a bank uh, or, not, or we are becoming a bank in terms of to, to, to conform. We think traditional banking is completely broken. And the biggest challenge for us so far in working with the regulators has been educating them on what a crypto bank means versus what a traditional bank means in terms of reserves and services offered and what is DeFi and all these other things. And they're there now and they get it. Okay. That's number one. Number two, we I firmly believe in the ethos of around not your keys, not your coins. Well, what the hell is Bill doing forming a bank uh, if, if he believes in, in not your keys, not your coins? And the reality is what I said before, the average user cannot deal with with personal private key management it's just not a, you know i've been dealing with pki since my netscape days when i ran it in the 90s and everybody has been trying to figure out key management for 30 years and everyone has failed and 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 so the reality is is that we're going to have a spectrum of people who basically need help 
but will buy into the fact that, yeah, I can withdraw it and these are mine, my assets and I have 24 seven access to put them on a ledger, whatever the hell a ledger is, whenever I want. All the way to the other end of the spectrum where the DGENs would never consider using a crypto bank and that's totally fine. And, and, and so, but I would posit that there's way more people <laughs> on the other end yeah. of the spectrum than there are on the DGEN end of the spectrum and that's the world we live in. Yeah, maybe one in 10 people who hear the ethos, not your keys, not your coins that are new to crypto, even consider it or think about it, I would argue. Maybe that's even a that, that's even a high estimate. So uh, mainstream adoption is not going to come crypto, with hardware wallets. Right. But to me, it's a core tenet of what crypto is, not uh, how to I, use I it. I agree. There's a big yeah. difference. That, that That is absolutely true. And you said, Bill, earlier that still... A lot of the yield is coming from that borrowing dollars, borrowing tether. I think you referred to it as the trade that uh, won't die or the trade that will never go away. What are they borrowing it for? And should we be concerned that that's still the trade that won't die? <laughs> I mean, I'm not concerned. I mean, we, yeah. we we only deal with, you know, really large balance sheets and over collateralized or fully collateralized positions. And so if somebody wants to go short tether and give me 120 percent in Bitcoin or something else. I I'll probably do that trade all day. Um, it's not something that I personally would want to, uh, and it's not something that I'm, you know, enabling three person hedge funds to do. Uh, but there are very, very large institutions who have relatively small positions shorting tether. And this is not something that I'm disclosing where the public should go. Oh my God, this is a known fact. Uh, you know, and, and the folks at tether are aware of it. They all kind of chuckle. Um, you know, those of us who are kind of more in crypto native look at it and go, okay, well, I wouldn't do that, but you know, they claim to be smarter than us and they're going to give us all this collateral. Go right ahead. <laughs> yeah, yes, I mean, they, go ahead, know, Matt. They, they may be they may be hedging against what they see as an existential risk, right? They're always of course they are. There's a and, reason and, why they're doing it. <laughs> right. And, and the borrow has gotten much cheaper. So it's not it's I mean, I'm not doing it. I, I can't imagine yeah. doing it, but I, I can imagine people in different scenarios wanting to do that. Yeah, um, it's cheaper, but it's not free. That's for sure. It is definitely not free. That is true. So why haven't we seen more companies add Bitcoin to their balance sheet? Wasn't that the original institutional adoption narrative, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of been an interesting timeline. We saw obviously Saylor at the end of 2020 and then Tesla and Michael Saylor had 2000 CFOs come to a conference, teach them how to put Bitcoin in their balance sheet. And then it all literally just went into venture capital and Web3, yeah. right? So uh, why, why haven't we seen uh, more adoption of Bitcoin as a treasury asset, assuming we believe in the digital gold and store of value narrative? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm happy to jump in. I think there's Please. three reasons. One actually just got cured. Right. So one reason was the FASB accounting standard for Bitcoin was punishingly bad. Uh, for people who don't know what that means, the way you had to account for Bitcoin as a balance sheet is if it went down, you had to mark down the value of your Bitcoin and then you could never mark it up. So it was effectively only a losing position. That sounds so absurd that when I tell people that's true, they don't believe me, yep. but it is in fact true. You had to mark it down and write that off as a loss and then you could never ever mark it up. And uh, if you're recorded, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's it's literally a lose lose scenario. If you're a publicly traded entity, you have to have Michael Saylor style conviction to want to put an asset on your balance sheet that can only ever go down in value and has a vol that's multiple X stocks. It's just like, you know, shoot yourself. Right. Um, they you recently why that why that really matters though, because 
if you think about it, you'd say like, well, everybody knows the real price. Okay, yeah, I see on the balance sheet. But no, that's a big deal. Because if you're now going to borrow against that asset in the future, right, you're going to borrow dollars and it's been marked down. Uh, and, and you know, the the basically the prime brokers that are going to be lending to you, look at your balance sheet, go to your accountants and say, what is this thing worth? They're going to look at the at the at the mandated accounting rules to figure out what they can lend to you. And if Bitcoin is worth 100,000, but it's marked at five on your balance sheet, you have a problem. Yeah. And I come from an ETF world. That was my life before crypto. There was actually something similar in ETFs where fixed income ETFs were ranked as risk capital alongside equities. They were treated like stocks and no one bought fixed income ETFs. No institutions bought them because of this arcane accounting rule. And then they changed it. And now it's a many, you know, many trillion dollar market. So I think this is a, uh, a huge piece. It literally just changed a week ago or so. Um, and now it's treated just like uh, my eight, my nine year old should think it's treated, which is if it goes up, you mark it up. If it goes down, uh, you mark it down. So that's that's a big piece. The other thing is, you know, people don't put risk assets on their balance sheet all that much. You don't see a lot of uh, it wasn't experience. a risk asset at that point, though. Right. That wasn't the narrative. The The narrative for risk asset uh, is new to the bear market, at least for people in the crypto space. But it's, sorry, go ahead. But no, I agree it's a risk asset. But yes, that's a, that's a fair point. I, I, we, can, we can get into this argument later. I think it did a fantastic job hedging inflation. I think that narrative's intact. Um, but you don't see people putting gold on their balance sheet. Like there's not yeah. a big move on Wall Street to put gold on your balance sheet. Uh, they don't put stocks on their balance sheet. They're, they're, like people tend to put cash and treasuries on their balance sheet. So I always thought that was a little oversold. I think the institutions that were going to do it in large scale were people who were investing in it the way you invest in equities. Um, but this accounting rule did matter. And uh, even if you wanted to, you weren't going to do it with this accounting rule. So Oliver, then do you think that now that that accounting rule has changed, that could become a part of the narrative? Or do you think that to Matt's point, it was just kind of the crypto community getting all whipped up about something that wasn't going to happen? I mean, frankly, you can just buy short-term bonds and put them on your balance sheet right now and make 4% yield. So, <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, I'm a lawyer by profession rather than an accountant. Uh, the, the one thing I can, I can give permanent thanks for uh, is that I don't have to deal with the accounting treatment of these things on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I, I don't know whether that was the big gating item as much as the, the second point there, which is that, you know, the idea that, that there are big institutions just putting loads of stuff that, that isn't cash and isn't, uh, isn't equities on, on their balance sheet. I don't know how plausible that ever was, nor how useful it actually is to the industry. I mean, as a proof of concept, then maybe we can all feel better about ourselves knowing that institutions are um, going long in this thing by holding it on the balance sheet, but that doesn't really help. But what helps is people getting out there and using it uh, and and trading and doing things with it because that's what drives innovation. That's what drives uh, the progress that we we all said earlier in the program that that we want to see going on. So, yeah, if if there are not big institutions going out there and putting a load of this stuff on their balance sheet and sitting there, I I kind of yeah I, I don't i don't really care um and if they're not doing if they're going to start doing it a bit more because of the accounting purposes cool. <laughs> then we can all be a little bit better about ourselves but um I, I wouldn't be surprised if that doesn't move the needle a huge amount i think that's I, right I think, I, yeah I, I do think that that people who work in corporate treasury you know they're not dealing with exchanges and and you know they're not interested in basically saying how do i trade bitcoin right they're gonna they work with banks who basically manage treasury 
and they're waiting for banks to say, okay, I have a new innovative treasury service, which is going to add 50 bips, 75 bips to your, to your returns. Uh, and if they hear that, you know, basically you're taking principal risk with your, uh, with your treasury, that's a whole other level of then, you know, board discussion versus, you know, okay, I'm dealing with Citibank who has, you know, a, a, a slightly better returning treasury solution, which is going to add 75 bips versus, hey, you know, I'm putting our entire treasury at short term risk. And most current companies aren't like Apple, Google, Facebook, where they can actually permanently take a big chunk of their cash and ride out 70 percent drawdowns. Most companies don't have that volume of cash. That's the problem. Right. And so there's no treasury solution that's going to solve that problem. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's right. I would actually go as far as say the crypto industry has had the institutions are coming narrative stack rank exactly wrong. When we talk about our pensions and endowments, corporations, hedge funds, sometimes family offices and never financial advisors. And if you talk about what part of the institutional stack is going to allocate to crypto first in a meaningful, long only way, it is the reverse order. Yeah, it's financial advisors, yeah. family yeah. offices. We're going to get to pensions and endowments eventually, and that's okay. Financial advisors control 10 to $20 trillion, depending on how you count. Family offices control $6 trillion. If they all put 2 to 5% of that allocation into crypto, that's amazing. And they're the first ones going to do it. We've been talking about the wrong end of the spectrum because they get headlines, and there's one Harvard management, and there are 20,000 RIAs. But those RAs control a lot of money. They're going to be the first mover, and that's how it's going to progress. Totally Family agree. offices in particular, right? Because they're driven not only by by the financials, but also by the interests of their, their um, principals. And we're already seeing a lot of movement there. So financial advisors like were the first movers, but the, the big volume comes with family offices, especially uh, in places like the Middle East, where there's just a lot more uh, appetite for this kind of thing. We're already seeing huge movement from that. So this is, you're, you're right. Like sitting back, trying to wait until pension funds start to make moves. It's like watching an oil tanker try and reverse. Like it will happen. It would eventually. What was that oil tanker that got itself stuck in the Suez Canal? Like it eventually right. got itself free, but um, it's not. It's not dynamic. I think is is the, is the best way of saying it. Yeah, and so much money. Family offices again. So much money. trillion dollars. Let's get a 5% allocation there. We're talking about a huge lift. Uh, and I think that's very achievable in the next wave, in the next three or four years, we could get we could get that kind of penetration there. And Matt, you obviously mentioned that you're an ETF guy in the past, and I can't believe I'm asking this question again on October 20th, 2022, but how much would a Bitcoin spot ETF move the needle for institutions? I think it would do, I think it would be meaningful in the US. I still think it would be a multi-billion dollar product. It would also give a regulatory stamp of approval similar to Bank of New York Mellon, where people just uh, check a box. The industry has moved on past that. You're seeing entities move into SMA strategies. You're seeing, again, national account approvals of private funds and other ways to gain access. If you if you squeeze a balloon, it pops out on the other side. But a, don't get you know, don't overlook it. A Bitcoin ETF would be a meaningful advance in the U.S. It would solve regulatory problems. It would bring in, uh, I think, eventually multi-billion dollars of assets. And it would lead to an Ethereum ETF, an index-based ETF, 
And eventually, that's how everyone wants to gain exposure. The other thing it would do, whether the crypto industry wants it to or not, is it would lower costs dramatically. ETFs have a forcing function. Yeah. Yeah. I, but, yeah. Retail wouldn't have to wouldn't have to buy GBTC at a thirty seven percent discount. And, and, and I mean, a, come on, consumer protection, right? <laughs> exactly. And at a two percent fee. I mean, ETFs are. Uh, you know, Eric Balchunas, who's an ETF analyst for Bloomberg, calls it a terror dome for pricing. It would drive those prices way down to where they should be, which is a commoditized yep. product. They're high prices now because it's it's difficult and hairy, and regulations and ETFs would bring it down. So it's a it's a win for consumer protection. It's a win for the crypto industry. And, uh, you know, I don't know when it's going to happen, but but I'm excited for that day whenever it comes. But I don't think it moves the price much for Bitcoin at all. I mean, think about the grayscale discount, right? Uh, okay, so if you approve an ETF, those two will converge, right? Uh, then you're going to see a massive, what and, and up and down, meaning, you know, the price of Bitcoin will probably come yeah. down on the expectation yeah. that there's going to be a lot of selling. Because a lot of people are holding on to that grayscale product because they don't want to, they don't want to realize that that loss right uh, and and so now all of a sudden the price let's say comes down 10 15 percent then you're gonna have a short-term wave of selling um, that might be a great buy opportunity after that uh, but i don't think you're going to see a price spike uh, yeah. over a couple sustained couple of months if, if an etf gets approved oh i think that's a very good point and I would, I would point to an etf analogy sorry to put that hat on when the gold etf was launched people got all excited because it Watch got a bill it got a billion dollars in, in five days and people thought gold was going to go to the moon, but it didn't. Over the next few years, it ended up with a few billion dollars. But five years later, it had 80 billion dollars. Exactly. And I suspect I, I think you're right, uh, Bill. There could be a short term sell the news effect. We're really good at that in crypto. Look at the merge. Yeah. We're good at selling yeah. the news. Um, but I think I think it also has that added GBTC dynamic. But five years from now, will it be good for crypto? Will it have impacted price? Will it have bought more people? Oh, for sure. We're great at telling the news, but we're equally good at buying the rumor because, you know, we we sent Ethereum up two and a half times before that. So That's right. uh, it goes both ways. Oliver, I saw you had a comment. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think the, the long-term effect is just adding credibility to it as a, as a product, right? I think the immediate fluctuation point, like, it's great if you're a day trader, but for people like me that are kind of neutral or people um, that are, uh, are, are hodling, the, the, the long-term effect is going to be more interesting. So having a, an ETF, I don't know, I think it adds a, a certain amount of credibility and a certain amount of um, signaling that the the market as a whole is now taking this asset class seriously. So I think there's probably going to be value in it, but you say not on a month-by-month -month basis, but maybe a three, four-year uh, indicator. Right. We all know that the ETF has gotten Gensler, right? Like everything else in the, uh, I think we should actually make that a verb, like everything else in the crypto space. But one of the ones going back to Bank, and, Bank of New York Mellon and custody, one of the sort of little talked about proposals from the SEC just a couple of weeks ago was that custodians were going to have to treat Bitcoin and crypto assets as a liability rather than an asset on their balance sheet. I don't know if you guys saw that. But the implication being that if you wanted to custody Bitcoin, you would have to then raise equal cash and hold it to account for that liability. That was a legitimate proposal yeah. now by Never gonna the SEC. Happen. Never going to happen. Zero chance. Yeah, get, get, Gensling thing, I, I like the verb, by the way. That's a great verb. Um, that and kind of a series of somewhat uh, unorthodox views that come out of the U.S., 
is one of the reasons that we're at Global are quite pleased that we serve rest of world clients. Um, you know, I, I agree with Bill. Like that kind of thing seems incredibly unlikely. Never say never is my my view, but I think it seems very unlikely. Yeah. But even just having this discussion is like it's it's absurd, right? Because people just put out these statements almost as if to see how controversial can they be, how angry can they just make the community just to kind of poke the bear a bit. Um, I don't think that's helpful. It doesn't happen in any other sector. Uh, and I think that there's a, yeah, in conjunction with the idea that crypto is growing up and that it is beginning to re recognize that regulation is important and it is beginning to recognize that it has a legitimate function to play. The flip side of that needs to be that people need to take it seriously as well and need to realize that it's not just uh, a plaything and there's serious financial market implications in terms of stability uh, in the long term that is involved with this kind of stuff. And you can't go out and and kick it around a bit just for funsies. Like that's not a legitimate thing for regulators or for legislators or even for serious commentators to be engaged with. Yeah, I think that's right. I will say from an investor perspective, one thing that's important to keep in mind is where is sentiment and where is reality. And the sentiment is like the US, you know, uh, is 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 only and exclusively blocking and delaying crypto. And I, I think you could make that argument from the SEC. But there is another side. There, there's actually been a fair amount of progress uh, in Congress on more balanced approaches to crypto that I think is pretty commendable. The legislative side is moving pretty well. The crypto lobby in that space is doing pretty well. Uh, you're even seeing things like stablecoin bills, which have have un, un, maybe mixed parts, but also some good parts where you can see the crypto industry's rising political force having an impact. Uh, and I think not now, but in a couple of years, this, this sort of regulatory headwind we all feel is going to shift to a tailwind. And I think the market is probably biased to interpret the news more negatively than it actually is. Isn't that a nice way of saying we can't make progress until Gensler's gone? I didn't say it, you did. Yeah, it's... <laughs> I, I I do think I or or, or he changes his tune uh, and becomes more. Yeah, you, you mean he doesn't use uh, he doesn't use everything in crypto as an excuse to make a campaign ad for his job at the uh, Treasury that he wants? Yes, I, correct. I said it. You didn't, right? Um, I mean, Bill, do you think that we can literally make any progress with the current regime? No progress. No, will 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 things happen? Yes. Will those be good things? I don't know. I mean, I think so. I think right now I'm looking to the states. Um, I'm hearing rumors that Florida is moving down the path of Wyoming, which is fantastic. Uh, I think uh, I was shocked that Newsom vetoed the California uh, bit license bill. That was a huge God. win. That was, that was a, a huge, huge win. win. Uh, and I, I think uh, Congressman uh, Connor had something to do with that. Also a Democrat. I think he's a, a kind of liberal, not libertarian, he toes the line on social issues, but but he's a voice of reason within the party and he happens to be based in California. So kudos to him. And in Silicon but, Valley of all places, I've had him on the show before. It's, it's yeah, he's great. impressive he's great. considering so, his constituency. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, I'm not going to, you know, he and I talk, I'm not going to basically say anything he said in, in, in confidence, but, but I mean, Gensler is not winning over um, a lot of fans within the Democrat, the core of the Democratic Party that is not the left-leaning Maxine Waters. He's, I'd shut he's off playing to Elizabeth Warren, right? If yeah. I could, narrative, which is just nonsense. And so, 
yeah, I don't, I, I'm sorry. I, I don't, I don't see a lot of progress and I don't consider a, a bill on stable coins progress. We have stable coins today. So, uh, how, how is that progress? Right. I mean, maybe it clarifies that makes people feel good about what they have, but that's like a Honda commercial for somebody who owns a Honda, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, what, oh, oh. so, uh, I, I think uh, the lesson to be learned probably everywhere, and, and I'm definitely not going to comment on, on the state of the U S and regulation there because not not my not my fight not my clown not my circus um yeah you have your own the, yeah we have our own and um, but actually you know look at what the eu's done the eu has realized perhaps later than we would have liked but still realized that regulating isn't the same as banning and actually you're much better off engaging and regulating properly and making this stuff safe than sitting on the sidelines and and tilting at windmills um if that's not too many metaphors to mix in one sentence um <laughs> But getting involved and saying, okay, this stuff exists. How do we make it safe? And how do we put consumers first and, and provide an environment in which they can actually trade this stuff? So, yeah. you know, the, the, the Mika regulation and before that, the CPCG in, in Liechtenstein, DABA in, in Bermuda and other initiatives like it around the world, they say, okay, well, if you, you can either sit on the sidelines and say, well, this stuff should be banned and call it regulation, but what you really mean is ban it. And come up with increasingly absurd ways to say oh we're not really banning we're just banning this tiny little bit and salami tactics means you ban the whole lot or you can say right well here's how you do it safely here are incredibly demanding standards that we're going to impose on you but if you meet those then you can play that's that's the sensible that's the growing up way to do it so but the but more the people FF, in the game the that your own narrative around you know having to uh, kyc cip uh private wallets is is insane Sorry. it's insane. it's, it's, it's it's not going to happen though, right? It's not going to happen. Well, I'm happy for I'm happy for Oliver that he can't get Gensler over there. Um, <laughs> and, and as we conclude here, because we are up against time, I say to all of you, don't don't get Gensler today because uh, it's, it's 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 a bad verb. I want to thank all three of you. That was an incredible conversation. Uh, we're actually going to wrap it up in audio and put it on Spotify and Apple and everywhere the podcast is as the uh, Thursday edition of the podcast today because we uh, felt like that might be might be worthy even in advance. I want to thank you guys, Oliver. First time here, really incredible insight, and you're welcome back anytime. Of course, Matt and Bill, you basically live here. Um, so uh, welcome. Hope my boy uh, and, yeah, yeah, and I'm going to move into your piano, beautiful piano living room. You're welcome um, anytime. And so everybody, that's it. I will be back tomorrow morning at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time once again. Thank you again to Oliver, Bill, Matt. Guys, uh, you're, you're amazing. And I appreciate you uh, giving me your time. Thanks, guys. Good Thank you very much. Great to see you. Bye, everyone. That's dope.